Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. Hi, and welcome to the June 2021 edition of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. In this episode, we have Kristen Olstad discussing OCD and Fran James talking about P1 fractures. Kristen Olstad is an Associate Professor of Veterinary Medicine at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences in Oslo. Kristen will discuss her recent research paper titled Radiological Vascular Osteochondrosis Occurs in the Distal Tarsus and May Cause Osteoarthritis. This is actually the fifth instalment of a quest to describe the blood supply to growth cartilage in multiple locations. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us um, on the EVJ podcast. A huge amount of research has been carried out by your research group looking into the pathogenesis of osteochondrosis. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what you've discovered? Uh, Of course, Uh, I'm very happy to do that. Um, Osteochondrosis is the most common of the developmental orthopedic diseases And it's defined as a focal disturbance in endochondral ossification. I'm part of a research group that uh, since 2004, and based on previous work in pigs, we've focused on studying the blood supply to growth cartilage. Now, most people will be familiar with the textbook statement that articular cartilage is an avascular tissue. But endochondral ossification takes place within growth cartilage, which can be several centimeters thick. And then it really needs a blood supply to survive. That blood supply is temporary, so it's only present during the early phases of growth. And it's arranged as anatomical end arteries that run within so-called cartilage canals. Cartilage canals are blind-ending tubular spaces within the growth cartilage, and an arterial and its capillary bed and one or more venules course into and out of the growth cartilage via one and the same canal in an arrangement that's pretty much similar to the glomerulus of the kidney. The canals are regularly spaced and they're separated by the extracellular matrix of the growth cartilage and that means that there is limited potential for collateral supply if a vessel should happen to fail. And that is exactly how osteochondrosis starts. A cartilage canal blood vessel fails, and this leads to ischemic necrosis of the chondrocytes surrounding that canal. Recently, I've started calling that an infarct because that is, to all intents and purposes, what it is. And initially, that infarct arises at intermediate depth of the growth cartilage, outside diffusion distance from synovial fluid and from subchondral bone. But with time, the ossification front will advance to surround the infarct, at which stage it causes the focal delay in endochondral ossification that is the definition of osteochondrosis. And then I'm sure you know that osteochondrosis can either resolve spontaneously or it can progress to osteochondrosis disicans or subchondral bone cysts. And our group has several other papers that describe how all of those occur if anyone's interested in reading more about that. Well, thank you. That- Thank, that's a great update um, for us all, and thank you for talking us through um, exactly how OC occurs. Um, 
Can you explain to us how this relates to the current paper that we're talking about today on distal tarsal osteoarthritis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'd spent about 12 or 13 years looking mainly at long bones, but of course the limb also contains cuboidal bones. And back in 1991, Barbara Wartrose et al. described osteochondrosis in the tarsal cuboidal bones of foals that were young enough to still have a cartilage canal blood supply. But if those lesions contained any necrotic vessels, it wasn't really described in the text. So we were keen to discover whether distal tarsal osteochondrosis lesions were centered on necrotic vessels and therefore also were likely caused by vascular failure. But more than that, this study actually represents one third of a larger project that is funded by the Swedish-Norwegian Foundation for Equine Research to look into the pathogenesis of developmental distal tarsal osteoarthritis, also known as juvenile arthritis or bone spavin. And some breeds like the Icelandic horse are heritably predisposed for and have high prevalence of distal tarsal osteoarthritis. Now, this project represents the coming together of a Norwegian group working forwards from the early pathogenesis to the clinical manifestations of osteochondrosis and the Swedish-Icelandic group working backwards from the screening of five-year-old Icelandic horses towards the early pathogenesis of distal tarsal osteoarthritis by examining progressively younger horses. For osteochondrosis, we've examined tarsocrural joints up to two to three months old. And for osteoarthritis, the Swedes have examined distal tarsal joints down to six months old. And in this study, we basically met in the middle by examining foals up to five months old, which is an age range where the growth cartilage of the cuboidal bones of at least some of those foals should still have a patent blood supply. Okay, so what did you aim to, uh, to investigate in the study? Um, the original aim was to study the blood supply to the growth cartilage of the central and third tarsal bones, because of course that is where distal tarsal osteoarthritis develops. Previously, we've studied the blood supply using a terminal arterial barium perfusion procedure. But in this study, we specifically wanted to try using a post-mortem perfusion procedure, because if it works, of course it means that one can recruit samples from the PM ring. We also knew that we wanted to use micro-CT to describe the barium arteriograms, both because it gives better non-destructive 2D and 3D representation of the blood supply, and because it's far less toxic than the principal alternative, which is chemical clearing of the tissues by the Spalterholz method. Now, CT is excellent for visualizing junctions between mineralized and non-mineralized tissues, like the bone contour which in skeletally immature individuals represents the junction between growth cartilage and primary spongiosa, i.e. the ossification front. So we therefore also wanted to exploit micro-CT to describe the development of the ossification center and any lesions we suspected we might detect, as we were, after all, sampling foals that died or were euthanized due to disease. Okay, so could you talk us through your study design, um, the techniques you used, and the methods you used to evaluate the blood supply and the lesions? Yeah, with pleasure. Um, we approached Icelandic horse breeders, 
asking if they were willing to donate foals that died or were euthanized due to our research, something which they were inclined to do, probably because of the high prevalence of distal tarsal osteoarthritis in this breed. Um, and we then augmented the population by adding limbs from foals of other breeds uh, that we archived during previous approved studies of osteochondrosis. Uh, this resulted in 23 hind limbs from 12 Icelandic horses and 11 fetuses and foals of breeds other than the Icelandic horse. Those limbs were arterially perfused by a modified version of the post-mortem protocol published by Hatch and Sammy in 1980 and of our own terminal perfusion protocol. Now that protocol ends with perfusion of barium dissolved in formalin which both fixes the tissues and it also sets within the vessels so that the samples can be dissected without the barium running back out of the vessels again. So the central and tarsal bones were then dissected out and scanned using a commercially available micro CT scanner from Bruker. Now there's limited information available on how to evaluate micro CT of immature tarsal cuboidal bones. Uh, so what we did was that we adopted the systematic approach that's recommended for the certificate in radiology. All our samples were skeletally immature, so we developed a system for evaluating skeletal immaturity that is fully described within the paper. We then assessed the quality of the arterial perfusions uh, by identifying the most complete perfusion and then ranking all other perfusions relative to it. We also described the blood supply to growth cartilage, focusing then mainly on the general orientation of the arterial trunks. And finally, um, we used the definition of osteochondrosis lesions in CT scans that has been histologically validated in several other bones. And that definition is that osteochondrosis lesions are focal, sharply demarcated, uniformly hypodense defects in or near the ossification front. So there are quite a lot of um, results to go through. How would you summarise um, your main findings? I have thought about this and I think that I'd like to focus on three main things. Uh, and the first thing was that the post-mortem perfusions, disappointingly, yielded only partial information from 41% of the animals. Most of the samples were underfilled or it was obvious that vessels had burst and leaked such that there were big splodges of barium outside the vessels. Uh, and this was most likely due to the nature of our samples. The barium technique is something we use because it's thoroughly validated through historical studies. But after this project, I wouldn't use post-mortem perfusion again I would only use terminal perfusion, if anything. But as mentioned, this is one third of a project. And the contralateral hind limb of these foals has gone for non-contrast MRI, in which it is possible to see the blood supply to growth cartilage without any perfusion. And although that's been challenging, given certain condition, we have got it to work. Uh, and then I think... Uh, if you're interested, you can read the finished MRI paper if you want to find out exactly what the conditions uh, for it to work are. So how did you find that the central and the third tarsal bones were supplied? 
Yeah, that's the second thing, uh, that um, even though those barium perfusions were incomplete, I think it was still possible to say something about the growth cartilage vessels that were perfectly perfused. Now, simply put, the arterial trunks coursed either predominantly vertical or predominantly horizontal with respect to the central and third tarsal bones as they're oriented in the standing horse. I know that these are not anatomically correct terms, but uh, the horizontal vessels arose around the entire periphery of the bones, meaning that it would take an awful lot of words to describe all of their respective degrees of obliquity correctly. So instead we just went with horizontal. Uh, And in addition to horizontal vessels entering around the periphery and coursing towards the centre, some horizontal vessels entered at the dorsolateral and dorsomedial corners, made a 90-degree turn, and then followed the dorsal circumference of the central and third tarsal walls. And as for the vertical vessels, those were visible both peripherally within the growth cartilage and more centrally, where they traversed the entire thickness of the ossification centers of the central and third tarsal bones. So we just ended up calling those transverse vessels. And did you see osteochondrosis lesions um, associated with vascular failure in these bones? Yeah, that was the third thing, which kind of took us by surprise, that 61% of the animals had focal changes that fitted with the criteria for diagnosis of radiological osteochondrosis. Here, of course, we have to be careful. It is absolutely possible to diagnose vascular failure using contrast-enhanced micro-CT, but for that, the perfusions really have to be complete, and that was not the case for the current post-mortem perfusions. We also have to be careful because although the criteria for CT diagnosis of osteochondrosis have been validated in other bones, including the talus, they've not yet been histologically validated in the central and third tarsal bones. But that is actually the third part of this project, to do histological validation. But even with those caveats, the current radiological osteochondrosis lesions in the central and third tarsal bones, they surprised us in the sense that there was pretty much a perfect match between the geometry of the focal osteochondrosis lesions and the configuration of either the vertical or the horizontal vessels. Now, by this explicitly, I mean that the majority of lesions were focal in a way that matched the configuration of the vertical vessels. There was also a new type of lesion consisting of full thickness cylindrical lesions that matched the configuration of the transverse vessels. And then finally, there were some dorsal lesions, the long axes of which matched the configuration of circumferential vessels. So even though it's a limitation that the lesions were not histologically validated within this paper, we could conclude that the detected radiological osteochondrosis lesions were compatible with being due to vascular failure, one, because they were focal, but also because there was a perfect match between lesion geometry and vessel configuration. And then coming back to um, the reason that this paper is looking at distal tarsal joint osteoarthritis, do you think an association can be made between osteochondrosis and osteoarthritis, um, can it be made on this data or will further investigation be needed? Well, in the paper, we argued that because the prevalence of radiological osteochondrosis was so high, it was actually 75% within the Icelandic group, 
and the Icelandic horse is predisposed for distal tarsal osteoarthritis. So now the relationship between osteochondrosis and distal tarsal osteoarthritis certainly warrants further investigation. Um, as mentioned, the project represents the coming together of two research groups. And we have, I believe, reached a consensus that some changes are specific to osteochondrosis. Other changes are specific to osteoarthritis. But during the project, we've certainly discovered several changes that directly overlap between osteochondrosis and osteoarthritis. For example, I strongly recommend to anyone who's familiar with early spavin lesions that they take a look at the current observed circumferential osteochondrosis lesions. And this will be discussed further in the upcoming histological paper, but the probably most important aspect of this entire project is that we've used micro-CT and MRI, and both of those modalities can readily be translated to clinical imaging, in which case it should be possible to actually monitor early osteochondrosis lesions and see for oneself if they lead to osteoarthritis. So once the complementary MRI and histological papers are published, I sincerely hope that either ourselves or anyone else who has a three Tesla MRI scanner will jump at the chance to do that. And Kristen, do you have a final take-home message for us? Yes, Rhiannon, I do. I realise that there is potentially an awful lot of new information to digest from this paper. For example, the prevalence of osteochondrosis may sound extremely high, but it's actually directly comparable to the prevalence reported by Waters et al. And that only goes to show two things. That early osteochondrosis lesions arise at a younger age than what one might think, and that a portion of them are likely to resolve because the prevalence of clinical osteochondrosis or osteoarthritis is considerably lower than 60 or 70%. Those are the take-home messages in the narrow perspective of this particular paper. But I would also love it if listeners were to take a minute to consider the greater context that this paper sits within, and that is that Growth cartilage has a blood supply. That realization changes both what diseases growth cartilage is susceptible to and our understanding of those diseases. Some diseases are well researched already, like heritably predisposed vascular failure in osteochondrosis and acquired septic vascular failure in bacteremia, whereas uh, several others are still only working hypotheses like immune-mediated vasculitis and the potential vascular effects of various pharmaceutical agents and dietary components. One thing is certain. The blood supply to growth cartilage is a topic that is here to stay, and people like myself who like researching it are not going to run out of a job anytime soon. Well, I, I really urge all the listeners to... Um, uh, Go and, go and look at the paper because you have some beautiful um, diagrams of exactly what you've described um, that really help visualise or help the, the reader visualise what's going on in the bones. Um, but thank you so much for talking us through some really fascinating research today, Kristen. Thank you for listening. Fran James is an Associate Equine Surgeon at Newmarket Equine Hospital. She'll discuss her recent paper titled Arthroscopic Evaluation of the Metacarpophalangeal 
and metatarsophalangeal joints in horses with parasagittal fractures of the proximal phalanx. Fran, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about your recent paper in EVJ. Um, to start off with, thoroughbred racehorses, as we know, commonly suffer parasagittal fractures of the proximal phalanx, and these can be repaired by internal fixation. So your paper investigates arthroscopic evaluation of fetlock joints with concurrent P1 fractures. So what additional information can be gained from concurrent arthroscopy? Thanks, Rhiannon. Um So we looked at uh, both fracture displacement and articular surface incongruency, um, and that was really the, the additional information that we got from the arthroscopy, looking at the soft tissues in the joint. Um, so that was including the articular cartilage, the joint capsule, and the dorsal plica, and then evaluating whether that as I said, incongruency of the joint surface. So was it, did it come back together or was it displaced um, at all? Or was there evidence of, of a lack of congruency? So it wasn't a smooth surface um, at the time of arthroscopy before reduction of the fracture. So what specific aims um, were in this study? So we were looking to describe what we saw arthroscopically in those fetlock joints for horses that had parasagittal fractures of the proximal phalanx. So at the time of um, the surgical repair, were the joints evaluated arthroscopically and then to describe what we saw. And then additionally, we compared the radiographic appearance of the complete fractures, so the complete parasagittal proximal phalanx fractures, with the arthroscopic appearance of those joints before the fractures were reduced. And what was your study population and inclusion criteria? So, as you might expect for the where we are, um, they were all thoroughbred racehorses. Most of them were um, flat racehorses. Um, we did have a couple of horses that were in jump training. Um, but the inclusion criteria initially was to look at all the horses undergoing surgical repair of non-comminuted parasagittal fractures of the proximal phalanx. So any horse that had a comminuted fracture was excluded. Um, any of the frontal fractures or you know other, other configurations other than parasagittal were excluded. Um, and then went back through and looked to see and to include all the horses that had arthroscopy concurrent to their fracture repair. And I believe um, radiographs and either uh, images or arthroscopy videos um, were retrospectively evaluated. So what were you assessing in each? So, yeah, what we were looking at in those different um, imaging modalities were was slightly different. So the radiographs, we looked at the fracture configuration, which has previously been published, looking at either whether they were short incomplete parasagittal fractures, long incomplete parasagittal fractures, or complete parasagittal fractures of the proximal phalanx. And then radiographically, we were looking for displacement um, and spent a bit of time defining that. So displacement being a change in the anatomic axis of one fracture fragment with respect to the other. Um, and the direction of displacement for those fractures was either um, dorsal palmar or dorsal plantar, mediolateral or proximodistal. And then going through those complete fractures and defining what radiographic displacement we could see. Um, the only other uh, thing that we did see on some of those radiographs, if there was mediolateral plane separation without anatomic um, axis alignment change, they would have been graded as distraction, not displacement, if you see what I mean. 
Um, arthroscopically, we looked at arthroscopically visible lesions, so as I said, soft tissues um, and cartilage changes, and then it assessed the congruency of the articular surface prior to fracture reduction. So was there evidence of either proximodistal, um, lateromedial, or dorsal palmar or dorsal plantar incongruency of the fracture at, at the fracture margins prior to reduction of the fracture? So um, thinking about your results, did you find any particular age or sex was overrepresented in your data? I mean, we had the medium for that, that um, population. We have a lot of two-year-olds, but that is the nature of that injury in our, our population. We see a lot of, of proximal phalanx fractures in two-year-olds, and that's in keeping with the previous studies um, that, that are in the literature. Um, there isn't really a sex predisposition. There's maybe marginally more fillies, but it's not significant. Um, but that is, you know, in keeping with what's out there. There's a lot more forelimbs um, than hind limbs, and again, that would be in keeping with the, the hospital um, experience of, of these types of injuries. And which fracture configuration did you most commonly find, and what features were identified on the radiographs? So um, there were significant, or, or the most common um, fracture configuration would have been the long, incomplete parasagittal fractures. That's about 64% of our. Um, of this population of horses. Um, the next most common would have been complete, and about 30% of um, the fractures in the study were, were complete parasagittal fractures of P1. When you break that down, um, looking at the radiographic findings, 79% of the complete fractures were displaced radiographically, so that was 19 out of the 24 horses. And looking at which direction they were displaced, and there's a bit more data in the paper in the supplemental um, uh, uh, file, that they were primarily identified as being proximal distal displacement radiographically. None of the radiographic um, displacement on the complete fractures showed dorsal palmar or dorsal plantar displacement radiographically. Um, that was compared to the arthroscopic findings we found joint incongruency in 20 um, of the 22 horses that we had arthroscopy uh, data for, and that was most commonly in the dorsal palmar or dorsal plantar plane, so quite different from the radiographic evidence. Um, two of the complete horses had, or complete fractures, had no displacement either radiographically or arthroscopically. In terms of other arthroscopic um, observations, we did find acute hemorrhagic tearing of the dorsal synovial plica um, or and adjacent joint capsule in 43 of the horses, um, which is 53% of that population. And two horses had tearing in both the dorsal and palmar joint patches. We didn't; there weren't a large number of horses that, that had um, evaluation of the palmar joint uh, space as well, but but it was there. We also found um, possibly what you might expect in, in horses of this um, age and um, purpose, uh, you know, thoroughbred racehorses, cartilage fibrillation of the sagittal ridge, uh, wear lines of the sagittal ridge, distal condyle and proximal sesamoid bones, um, osteochondrosis type lesions of the sagittal ridge, uh, and osteochondral fragmentation of the dorsal proximal P1 um, in, in a number of those horses. There were 22 horses that had no, or at least no recorded arthroscopic findings except for the fracture um, at, at the time of arthroscopy. And were any of those soft tissue findings um, associated with a particular fracture type? So the 
injuries to the, the dorsal plica and the joint capsule, we saw them in all um, fractured configurations, but they, they were more prevalent in the long incomplete parasagittal fractures. Um, so looking at the long incomplete, 65% of those had uh, dorsal plica or joint capsule tears, so 34 of the 52, um, compared to, say, the complete fractures where we saw tearing and um, damage to those structures in eight of those 24 complete fractures, so proportionately less. We only saw it, and, and the short incomplete fractures, there were obviously less of those, only five horses. Only one of those had tearing of the, the plica or the joint capsule. And Fran, just before we go on, what constitutes a short incomplete compared to a long incomplete? That is a, a good question. Um, so there's obviously um, Matt and Ian published a paper back in 2014. Um, so the short incomplete fractures, uh, by, by that definition, we use the same definition in this horse uh, or this, this population, um, is a fracture extending in the parasagittal plane, um, but less than 30 millimetres distal to the the proximal articular margin of the sagittal groove. So they were all measured and, and uh, assigned. Um, if they were less than, than three centimetres below the joint surface, the fracture was short and complete. Anything longer than a, a 30 millimetre um, fracture line in that plane um, would have been a long incomplete. And then obviously complete, either um, uh, completed through the lateral cortex or into the, the paston joint. Great, thank you. So there was disparity between displacement detected on radiographs compared to arthroscopy. Um, I think as you describe radiographs detected, um, proximodistal incongruency, whereas arthroscopy more commonly detected the dorsopalmar displacement. Yeah. So why do you think these um, methods produce different results? You found different it, things. It, it's a really good question because it wasn't exactly what we expected. We, we thought that you'd maybe get more out of arthroscopy, um, but... It seems as though, um, as I said, the radiographs didn't, we didn't see any dorsopalmar or dorsoplantar um, displacement. It may be that the, the what we're seeing arthroscopically is relatively minor, because obviously with the arthroscope, there's a, a slight degree of magnification, um, so it's much easier to see it arthroscopically. But it's also, we think, probably related to summation on the radiographs. So if you look at the shape of proximal P1 and what you're trying to see, you've got overlap, particularly um, the palmar and plantar or plantar processes of P1. It's quite hard visually to determine a small degree of displacement um, in that dorsopalmar or dorsoplantar plane on a lateral medial radiograph compared to, say, um, the, the dorsopalmar or dorsoplantar um, view where it's, it's visually a lot easier to pick up on um, that step at the articular surface. So uh, radiographically, it was, it was um, quite easy to define that, that pro the proximal distal um, displacement. But then if you look arthroscopically, maybe it's the arthroscopic viewing angle. So you're obviously looking down on the articular surface and, and it's not um, in terms of the relative sensitivity of depth perception. Um, in that plane, it may be that we were underestimating the proximal distal displacement arthroscopically. Um, and as I said, it was much easier to see it radiographically. Um, but there's no doubt that the radiographs alone didn't predict what we saw arthroscopically at the time of, of fracture repair. 
And um, as you were previously discussing the trauma to the dorsal synovial plica, you identified this in 65% of long incomplete fractures, and it was significantly more common in the forelimb compared to the hind limb. Was there any reason why um, you think this pattern occurs? Probably the answer is we don't know, um, because the cause of these injuries is, uh, or that the injury to the dorsal synovial plica and all the joint capsule is unknown. We certainly... It's not a common concurrent finding in other fatlock joint injuries, so um, other than metacarpophalangeal and metatarsophalangeal joints that we scope, removing proximal P1 fragments, for example, um, that sort of osteochondral fragmentation, it's fairly routine to be scoping fatlocks. We don't always see this injury in this population of horses. It certainly um, doesn't appear to be directly associated with joint surface displacement, um, so it wasn't, we, wasn't the complete fractures um, that had the highest group of, of those injuries. It was we saw it across the board in all the, the fracture configurations. It may be that there's other things going on with these joints. Obviously the joint capsule provides a degree of, of stability to the joint and whether there's other things in that development course of, of these horses getting um, parasitial fractures that we haven't fully elucidated yet. That's certainly possible. In terms of the forelimb versus hind limb, we certainly had a lot more forelimb fractures in this study, and that would be um, typical. We see more parasitical fractures in the front leg. Um, it may also be because arthroscopically, um, the, the data was reviewed retrospectively, the arthroscopic data. We may have just not fully evaluated all of the joints completely. So we had a lot of images. It was, it was certainly the data was good, but it may not have been exhaustive and, and that there's more information that we just, there could be more hind limb um, injuries. It would be more um, even across that group. And after assessing your data, um, does this research support arthroscopy in all P1 fractures or would you recommend it in certain configurations? Yeah, and I know people worry about, you know, adds, adds time to the surgery um, and potentially um, complications with extravasation of fluid and that sort of thing. I, I do think that it's very clear from, from this data that it's essential for complete fractures. Um, so any complete parasitical fracture of P1 you need to assess it um, arthroscopically to determine if your reduction is good um, and if you fully appreciated the ways in which those fragments have moved apart. It certainly provides additional info um, for the other fracture configurations, but we probably need to get a bit more information and further investigation to determine the significance of the injuries to the dorsal plica and the joint capsule. Um, but I think in those cases, more information is certainly useful um, provided it's you know, not, not significantly increasing your, your anaesthetic time and potential complications. And, and would other diagnostic imaging or further diagnostic imaging such as ultrasonography or CT beforehand allow further evaluation of structures? So help yeah. refine possible cases for arthroscopy? You know, it, it might. Um, I mean, I think they're tricky. Some of these sources aren't terribly comfortable um, because of the fracture um, and so ultrasound may be a frustrating we don't routinely ultrasound them we certainly routinely ultrasound other fetlock joints but um, in those horses there's you know two-year-olds that just come in from the galaxy and acute fracture they're not always the easiest cases um, to extensively ultrasound examine but certainly you can see those soft tissue injuries in the dorsal plica and the joint capsule 
well on ultrasound um, and you can probably appreciate some of the, uh, of the articular cartilage injury not as well I think as, as you can arthroscopically. CT is invaluable for, for getting more detail on, on the direction and degree of displacement so I think that's, that's a very very useful tool. It's not available to everyone. Um, we're lucky to have a, you know, a portable unit that we do CT most of those fractures um, and that is, is hugely um, useful and particularly in putting them back together in 3D. Um, whether it's better than arthroscopy, I, I think that we don't have the data to, to, to say that for sure, but um, it, it certainly provides additional information. And um, Fran, what's your overall take-home message from this study? The, the arthroscopy identifies a variety of concurrent intraarticular lesions. So as you'd expect, you see a lot more um, what's going on with the fellow joint surface in these horses that, that also have fractures. I would hope in the long run that I would help us with, with the long-term prognosis for some of these horses. Um, obviously, connections make, make decisions about whether to retire some of these horses, not related to the, the, the joint pathology, more related to their plans for breeding and, and that sort of thing. So it may not alter the outcome for these horses. But I think it is useful information that, that um, will further the, the, the awareness we have of joint injuries and what, what affects these horses' long-term careers. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Nice to talk chat. Thanks again for listening and please join us for the next episode in August. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash EVJ.